Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon. Just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and it's Saturday. We're going into the vault for an older episode of the show. This one is part one of our series on the cauldron, a rather mundane object. But I recall we dug up a a lot of interesting threads and tangents on this. Uh, So this episode originally published May 24th, 2022. Uh, Let's let's jump right in and land with the splash. Round about the cauldron go in the poisoned entrails throw. Toad that under cold stone, days and nights has thirty-one. Sweltered venom sleeping got, boil thou first in the charmed pot. Double, double toil and trouble, fire burn and cauldron bubble. Fillet of a finny snake in the cauldron boil and bake. Eye of newt and toe of frog, wool of bat and tongue of dog. Adder's fork and blindworm's sting, lizard's leg and howlet's wing, for a charm of powerful trouble, like a hell broth boil and bubble, double double toil and trouble, fire burn and cauldron bubble. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And uh, Rob, why did you ask me to read from Macbeth in a witchy voice? What What is that going to lead into? <laughs> well, of course, we're going to be talking about cauldrons. And and certainly in Western traditions, I feel like one of the, the first places that one's mind goes 
is um, is to go to Act Four, Scene One of William Shakespeare's Macbeth. Uh, this is the scene that we uh, we just read from Round About the Cauldron Go. Uh, it's uh, it, and it does bring together a number of the ideas of the cauldron that will be discussed in these episodes, uh, and of course, it's just a, just a fabulous scene in general with witches doing their 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 witchy best to make some sort of uh, horrific potion. Now, obviously, you you have had cauldrons on the brain. What sent you down this path? How, how did we end up here? You know, I don't remember exactly. It was something that came up in previous research for another episode. I started noticing the cauldron, and I was like, oh, well, there's a lot here. We should consider coming back to it. And indeed, there there is quite a lot, because on one hand, you have just the history of, of, of mundane but fascinating cooking technology, and then you have the different sacred and supernatural directions this goes in as, in as well. Uh, certainly there's the, the Asian tradition, which uh, we'll, we'll probably get to first, but then there's this rich Western tradition going back to, uh, to Celtic traditions and so forth. And some of these are perhaps more connected with the cauldron of Macbeth, and mm. uh, we'll probably discuss that in a, in a, in a subsequent episode. But, but it is neat to, to ask ourselves, like, what do we think of when we think of cauldron? Um, I, I know... I instantly think, of course, of this scene from Macbeth, but I also instantly think back to a trio of early 80s films. I think of Beastmaster, I think of Conan the Barbarian, and I also think of, those are both from 1982, but I also think of 1981's Clash of the Titans. Uh, all three of these have some sort of a cannibal stew going on, some, in a, some sort of a, a big broth that uh, it is revealed has human parts within it. Mm. Now, in the Clash of the Titans, there's an interesting connection because the cauldron is being tended by three crones, the Grii sisters, who mm -hmm. are uh, part of the story of, of Perseus and uh, Medusa. And it's hard not to notice the similarities with the three witch sisters in Macbeth there. Yeah, it's my understanding there is a connection here. These are essentially the ancient predecessors of Macbeth's witches. Um, now, as for the, the cannibal stews, yeah, I think it's a case where, uh, I'm just guessing here, but based on the timeline, I think they invoked it in Clash of the Titans, and then uh, either overtly or not, the makers of Beastmaster and Conan were like, oh, we need to get in on that. That's, that's yeah. a great image. Get, get, get a cannibal stew in here. But if that's the case, why didn't uh, Conan have a pet mechanical owl? I know, I know. It's a, it's it's a it's a flaw. It's often pointed out as a flaw of that film. Conan <laughs> needs a robot. Uh, I, I think another film that people might think of would be the 1985 Disney film The Black Cauldron, based on the work of Lloyd Alexander. And this, of, of course, drew from Welsh mythology, and we'll get into some of that uh, in subsequent episodes. But I asked my 10-year-old son what he thought about when I mentioned the word cauldron. Uh, he has not seen, well, he's seen uh, um, Clash of the Titans and loves it, but he hasn't seen the other two films. Uh, when I asked him, he said, well, I think of Soup and I think of Harry Potter, uh, the latter of which, of course, is also linked to Western traditions of, of witches and so forth. Uh, and I think the Potter books and films are yeah, probably a key modern pop culture reference regarding cauldrons. You know, I started thinking about something with this word, but then started doubting myself. I'll, I'll see what you what you think about this. So okay. I don't know if there's already an established term for this type of phenomenon, but I was thinking about how cauldron is something you might call like a charged variant of a concept, a word that has extremely mundane literal synonyms. Like literal, literally a cauldron is just a large pot or a big pot. I think 
Perhaps uh, one that is especially used over an open flame, more so than in like an indoor cooktop setting. Mm -hmm. Uh, And yet the word suggests a world of associations that its literal synonyms do not. Like in English, large pot does not have any special magic swirling about it, but cauldron does. Anytime you say the word cauldron, it suggests, you know, this is trollish sorcery. Something is going on. Mm -hmm. But then again, maybe it's not that remarkable because I guess you can think of other things associated with magic. Like I think the word wand literally just means like a rod or a stick, but in modern English, it is pretty much always associated with magic. Yeah, yeah, it is interesting to think about this because with the with the cauldron, you could sort of go cauldron, pot, crock pot, instant pot, and <laughs> and the, the closer you get to instant, like the the instant pot. It does not have really any um, nefarious or magical connotations. It's thoroughly modern, um, nothing to fear. And I feel like the, the further back through the terminology you go, yes, the, the, the stranger things get. Because um, even pot is more uh, intimidating than crock pot. Well, I wonder if there's generally a thing in languages where there's like an archaic synonym for a word that loses its mundane associations. Like one one synonym maintains the mundanity through the ages and the other one only retains usage in magically charged scenarios. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the case. I'm not sure if we're going to end up keeping the third uh, witch's bit from the the opening here, Uh, but there is a line in that where the... Um, where the witch rhymes uh, children with cauldron, children being uh, uh, this old term for like entrails. Uh, but I, I didn't do a deep dive into this terminology, but it's my understanding like that was that was already an archaic term uh, when Shakespeare used it, or or you know, it, or and or a more specified term. Uh, but you do what you have to do when you need to rhyme something with cauldron. Yeah, what else fits in there? Squadron? Not really. <laughs> I mean, you can make it work, but why are witches going to be talking about squadrons? How about how about how about godson cauldron? That's kind of a mm, maybe, maybe. I think you got to put some spin on the pronunciation, though. That's like an Eminem style style. Yeah, rhyme. you, you got to be a pro to make that work. So, all in all, there is a rich tradition of cauldrons overflowing with powers of death creation, domination, torment, and divination. Uh, But before we get into all of this properly, we have to back up. We have to really talk about the mundane world of cauldrons as well. And so we're going to have to talk about uh, you know the, the origins of soup technology, which I've been super <laughs> excited about all weekend. And um, uh, I think my family is sick of hearing about it. You've been talking about soup a lot. Did you make soup this? No, it's too hot for soup. That's the thing. Oh yeah. <laughs> I mean, we could have made gazpacho, I guess, but uh, but no, I haven't been having any soup. But just reading about uh, the traditions of soup, it's made me respect it all the more. I need a cold snap so I can get back into it. So first and foremost, as we've been discussing, a cauldron is simply a large pot used to boil liquid over a fire. So in function, it's, it's really no different from any pot you have in your kitchen. It's just generally considered a bigger pot. Now, long before the advent of metal pots, we had bowls, we had pots of pottery, as well as presumably ones made of wood and leather, though such artifacts don't always stand the test of time near as well. But uh, one, one question that's interesting to, to get into is, okay, well, we're talking about cauldrons. We're inevitably talking about, about soups in many cases. But do you need a pot or you need a metal pot, or do you need a pot at all in order to make soup? I would have thought so. Uh, there was a time where I would have thought so as well, but it turns out it's not necessary because uh, a hole in the ground is nature's cauldron. 
Um, and this is something that can be made watertight via the use of animal hides. And then one may fill this hole with water and, of course, food materials, your various ingredients, uh, which will, of course, eventually come together in a hot soup. But where's the heat going to come from? Good question. Yeah, because you can't put a fire under it if it's a hole in the ground and it's no. a hide. I mean, I guess there might be specialized situations where you could depend on geothermal heat, but in this example, geothermal heat is not available. So you're going to have to create something with fire. The answer is you have an adjacent fire, get it nice and hot, and then you have hot stones heated up in that fire. And then those hot stones are transferred from the fire to the soup. And that is how you heat the soup in the hole. Nice. Okay. The hot stone goes in, then you got a stew going. Yeah. Now, other perishable above-ground bowls and pots apparently were also used uh, in different cultures with this technique, um, which is generally referred to as stone boiling. Um, and if, in, in these cases, you would often have like a wet bark or hide uh, scenario uh, to create the vessel. But stone boiling has been traced to pre-pottery culinary traditions of Native American tribes, Paleolithic Chinese groups, and even Neanderthals. And on a quick note about, uh, about uh, Chinese culture, um, I, I know when we talk about cooking with stones and cooking soup with stones, you instantly think about the story of stone soup, which I believe in most tellings has no relation to, uh, to, to, uh, to stone boiling. Uh, however, Chinese-American author Ying Cheng Compostein adapted the, 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 the classic story, but with, uh, with the twist. Uh, first of all, a Chinese twist, setting it in, um, in ancient China, but also incorporating a stone boiling motif uh, in this book called The Real Story of Stone Soup. Mm, well, Rob, I know I know you said everybody knows the story, but maybe some people don't. What, what's the quick version of the stone soup? Uh, oh, well, the, tale? the classic stone soup say, tale is that uh, you know you have some some individual. Generally, there's sort of a you know a roguish uh, type character. Uh, there's actually a great adaptation of this with some additional elements in uh, Jim Henson's The Storyteller series. Mm. But uh, uh, here's this uh, this man, and he's uh, he's cooking up some some water. And he asked uh, somebody passing by, excuse me, I'm making some, some soup. Uh, could you help me? I just need a, a nice stone. And they're you know, like, what? What do you need a stone for? And, and they're like, well, I'm making stone soup. And so they, they agree. They bring uh, this individual a stone. And you know, in many cases, you know, the, uh, the, the, the would-be chef here sniffs it, maybe uh, licks the stone. And it's like, mm, okay, this is a good one, plunks it in. And so now, the, now people are beginning to get interested. Other passerbyers stop and they're like, what's he doing? He's cooking stone soup. Uh, they ask him, well, how does it taste when he samples it? And he's like, well, it needs a little salt. So uh, he doesn't have salt, but somebody is, is now, in, they're now invested in this process. And so someone brings some salt, uh, but then he chases it again. No, it needs a little pepper. So someone brings some pepper. Before long, of course, it needs some celery. It needs some potatoes. It needs all these other ingredients. And at the end of the process, uh, there is this uh, great big bowl of soup. And I think in most tellings, it is then communally enjoyed. Oh, well, that's a great story. And a sort of a, an idea about how you can, you can like hype bootstrap nothing into something yeah yeah it's a it's a, it's a wonderful tale um but uh but yeah in this uh, this adaptation it, it takes the stone boiling technique and factors it in uh which which i found was pretty clever now you might wonder well, what kind of evidence is there for stone soup um so according to a few different sources i was looking at uh basically it comes down to pits uh that are that are found in the archaeological record that have stones in them stones that are cracked from heat often referred to as thermally cracked rocks. 
so this is this indicates that that these rocks were heated to a high temperature and then added uh, to this broth or added to water to help make this broth. And we also tend to see this and pit cooking kind of loop together into a combined earth oven cooking tradition. Oh, yeah. Okay. So this wouldn't even necessarily always be something like soup. Like uh, I know that there are some methods for like roasting meat. I think Mesoamerican culinary traditions mm-hmm. where you'd like wrap some meat in um, in in leaves, like wet leaves or something, and then cook it in a pit in the ground with hot coals. Yeah. So I think it, it does certainly speak to human innovation. Like if the, if the hole in the ground is your level of cooking technology, it doesn't mean you're not coming up with, in, with new and ingenious ways to tinker with that format. Uh, such as as you know, eventually developing a, a wet cooking technology. And I guess we can come back to this in a minute, but I think there are real advantages to so-called wet cooking technologies that they like they have some measurable benefits that some other types of cooking do not. Right. I mean, so it, it, it obviously wet cooking sticks with us, and wet cooking survives the use of um, of, uh, of of stone boiling. Now, stone boiling, yeah, it does eventually lose out to other techniques, especially container-based cooking with pottery, et cetera, because ultimately stone boiling requires more maintenance and it isn't nearly as passive a technique. Uh, so, you know, if you're adding those hot stones, then you have to keep adding new hot stones, taking out the old stones. Um, you can't just, well, let's put, the, let's put the soup on and then go do these other things required to present the meal. Oh, yeah. Nutrition and taste aside, that's another great thing about wet cooking. So if you just like put some food items in a pot with water and then let it boil, you can Mm -hmm. just ignore it for a long time and it's not going to burn or anything because there's enough water content in there that that, that's going to be fine. Yeah. So uh, another source I was looking at, there's a a paper titled Stone Boiling Firecracked Rock and Nut Oil, published in the Wisconsin Archaeologist in 2009. This is by James Skibo. And uh, 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 Skiba points out that the whole process of adding and removing hot stones during the production of nut oil would have resulted in the loss of that precious nut oil that was being produced. So that's another thing to think about. It's like not only is it, you know, not a very passive technique, but if you're having to keep, you know, reaching in there with some sort of implement and removing rocks, adding new rocks, you're going to lose some of, uh, of what you're actually brewing up. Oh, yeah. Okay. I can see that. It, like sticking to the rocks and stuff. Yeah. Uh, and, and But I should also point out, though, that there is apparently evidence of stone boiling surviving into the advent of pottery with the stones added to water inside of vessels. Um, so, um, and, and then I also, I believe, examples of, of stone boiling that is also taking place in some sort of um, above ground scenario, some sort of like, say, a, a wet hide bag or a wet bark container. So there, it didn't have to happen in the ground, but I think the most, uh, uh, certainly to, to modern, our modern understanding of, uh, of culinary technologies, I think the, the hole in the ground stone boiling scenario is perhaps the most uh, uh, amazing and the most uh, removed from what we seem to be doing. Okay, so we might not know exactly when the first human boiled something, but we do have a pretty clear picture that Wet cooking or boiling, simmering, whatever you want to call it, cooking something in water is a technique that comes along later in the history of cooking because like fire goes back a long time before and pretty clearly humans were maybe say roasting things over an open flame before they had wet cooking techniques. So where do these wet cooking techniques come from, do we think? Well, I found a source discussing this. This is from John D. Speth in When Did Humans Learn to Boil? 2015, Paleoanthropology Society. Uh, I'm going to read a quote from this paper. Quote, 
Pits that would have been suitable for stone boiling are equally scarce until the upper Paleolithic, although the evidence for subsurface features of this sort may have been obscured or erased by post-taphonomic processes. Not surprisingly, therefore, because of the late appearance of heated stones and potential boiling pits, archaeologists almost without exception have come to the logical conclusion that wet cooking is a late addition to human culinary practices, another of a long list of technological achievements which we owe to the enhanced cognitive powers of fully modern humans. Okay, so cooking may be older, but we think wet cooking is probably something that comes about in the upper Paleolithic, which I think is generally like uh, between something like 50,000 to like 12,000 years ago. Mm -hmm. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Rob, as the, uh, the local host with allergies here, they sent you some of their nasal spray to treat your allergies. What was your experience like? Yeah, that's right. I always wrestle with the pollen a bit when it rolls in during the spring. So they sent me the little uh, nasal spray. I tried out the product and yeah, it sure did help me get on top of my symptoms for the day. And it's so fast acting, uh, it was already kicking in before I left the house. Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray. It's the fastest 24-hour over-the-counter allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes, while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray. Astapro delivers full prescription-strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can get Astapro and go today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Astapro and go. Use this directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And now, for a limited time, get more Cedar Point fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this bundle won't last long. Save now at cedarpoint.com. Now, um, interestingly enough, I think we've pointed this out before, but it's still it's one of those facts that I think can, uh, can, can, can be very stimulating, is that pottery predates agriculture. And uh, according to Brian Fagan and Bill uh, Sillar, 
very little of the oldest pottery remains are actually charred by fire, suggesting that these were uh, more uh, prestigious items for displaying food than for something you would actually use to cook food. So while foragers made use of, of pottery, uh, we also have to remember that this was also the, the pottery is is fragile and it's perhaps not ideal for people who are traveling around. Uh, so uh, the, 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 this this is quite interesting that that Fagan and Seiler bring up here is that the usefulness of, of pottery. Uh, paired with its fragility, might have been a contributing factor for some groups that had pottery to settle down. Like to, to make full use of the pottery, you might have to stop moving around at least a bit and have more of a base of operations where your pottery uh, has less chance of becoming fragmented and, and shattered and can be used to store things as well as present things and so forth. Now, some of our earliest pottery fragments, it depends where you are in the, the timeline of discoveries. Uh, so when Fagan and, and Seiler were, were writing, this is from the, um, the 70 Great Inventions of the Ancient World, uh, they were pointing to 14,000 BCE in Japan as being the, the oldest, oldest known pottery discovery. Uh, however, after the publication of that book, a 2012 paper um, revealed that uh, Shenrin Cave in eastern China was found to contain charred pottery fragments dating back 20,000 years. Yeah, I was looking around at uh, these questions about what is the earliest evidence of pottery or pots in general, and the earliest pots would be pottery. They would be ceramics of some kind fired out of uh, clay or other earthen materials, not metal. Met metal uh, mm -hmm. cooking vessels would come much later. So the earliest pottery vessels used for cooking, I was looking, what's the evidence for that? And I came across... A paper from 2013 published in Nature by Oliver Craig et al. called Earliest Evidence for the Use of Pottery. And uh, I also was looking at a write-up of this in Science by Sid Perkins called First Evidence of Pottery Used for Cooking. Um, and at the time, this was considered some of the earliest direct evidence for pottery used explicitly for cooking. And my immediate question was, well, what were they cooking in it? Do we have any idea? Mm. Actually, yes, this paper looks directly into that question of what they were cooking and helps give us a picture of the way of life of the people who use this pottery. So the authors of this paper argue... Uh, that the evidence indicates pottery technology emerged in East Asia between 12,000 and 20,000 years before the present. And it was an innovation among hunter-gatherers. Rob, you mentioned that a minute ago, but I think it's worth sitting with that for a minute. Mm -hmm. it's, it's a strange thing. You might, you might assume pottery only arises among people who have adopted farming and an agricultural settled way of life that allows them to have fixed homes and, uh, and you know, forges and so forth, uh, the, this kind of uh, industry of, of creating earthenware uh, uh, vessels would arise from that setting. But no, it does appear to arise before people settled down and started farming. But this raises the question, why was pottery invented? We, we were getting an idea of when and where it was mm. invented, but why? What was driving it? What was the role it played in people's lives? Well, the authors of this paper argue that for the hunter-gatherers who first started making these pots, uh, and this is looking at um, late Pleistocene pottery from Japan, a total of 101 charred deposits from 13 different sites all over the Japanese islands, and these would be uh, pots associated with the Jomon culture, the J-O-M-O-N. Craig and co-authors here argue that uh, 
what would have caused people to to uh, uptake pottery in this context is if the pottery provided people with new ways to process and consume foods. This would be the driving technological advantage, but we don't know exactly how these earliest pots were used. So this study did a chemical analysis on the residue left on the uh, these uh, charred deposits on pottery from all over uh, prehistoric Japan. And one thing worth noting is that Many of these sites that the pottery shards were recovered from were near inland rivers or uh, or lakes, and so they were not necessarily by the coast. The authors write, We demonstrate that lipids can be recovered reliably from charred surface deposits adhering to pottery dating from about 15,000 to 11,800 calibrated years before present. And that's again the incipient Jomon period. Continuing, the oldest pottery so far investigated, and that in most cases these organic compounds are unequivocally derived from processing freshwater and marine organisms. Mm. So at the time of this paper, it seemed like the er- some of the earliest pots ever used for cooking were being used for cooking seafood. Uh, though I guess, actually, I don't know, is it still seafood if it's freshwater fish? I'm not sure. Hmm. That's a quandary as well. Uh, more than three quarters of the charred deposits indicated, quote, high trophic level aquatic food. Now, high trophic level means high up the food chain. So primary producers like plants are at the bottom, and then you'd have herbivores above them, and then you'd have carnivores above them, and then you'd have the top carnivores above, uh, above them. And I assume high trophic level aquatic food means they were not only eating seafood, they were eating aquatic carnivores. The paper draws attention to the possibility that a lot of this was salmon, that these Mm. pots have fatty acids left by uh, prehistoric cooking of salmon, which travel upstream for spawning, which could explain these these highly nutritious seafoods uh, uh, near these inland lakes and rivers, not necessarily by the uh, shore. That's fascinating because, yeah, the first place my mind went was, okay, perhaps boiling some sort of crustaceans and so forth. Uh, Mm Because sometimes that's that's the best way to to get at these organisms and turn them into something you can can eat. Uh, But but salmon, it makes sense as well, especially if you're imagining a scenario where it's like the spawning situation and you have sort of a a sudden um, uh, glut of salmon at your disposal. What are you going to do with them? Yeah, and these people were apparently massively successful at exploiting the food resources available at the water's edge. Uh, I've read multiple sources alluding to the idea that uh, apparently just prehistoric Japan was a great place to be a hunter-gatherer. There were just a lot of available food resources in the natural environment, then you could could create a lot of calories for your society without Mm -hmm. having to farm. But I also wanted to discuss a few notes on what this type of pottery was. So again, this would have been the incipient Jomon culture. Uh, Jomon, the Jomon people actually get their archaeological reference uh, name from the from a descriptor of their pottery. Hmm. Uh, Jomon means something something having to do with the idea of uh, ropes. And so the pottery they made is uh, noted for having decorations where while the clay was still wet, impressions were made in the clay with ropes. So if you look up Jomon pottery, you'll see all these kind of strange looking uh, fiber textures on the outside of it. So I guess they would press ropes into it and then they would fire it to set the textures uh, in, in the clay. But there are some other very notable characteristics of these, these early pots. 
First of all, they tend to be very small. And second, they have round bottoms. Rob, I attached a picture of one of these round bottom pots for you to look at. And uh, it sort of goes against what you would assume about nearly any pot you would come across today. What's the bottom of a pot got to be like? It needs to be flat so it can sit on a table or on the floor, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. These are not flat. You could not sit these on a table. They would roll over. Can't stand up by itself on a flat surface. That's kind of odd. And it makes you think about, well, wait a minute, then how were they using these pots? Later, Joman pottery shows increases in size, so bigger pots, and they tend to uh, innovate a flat bottom. So it seems like the later pots would have been able to stand on a table or on the ground. These earlier pots, no. And this has been interpreted as an evolution of the context in which the pottery was primarily used. So perhaps the earliest use of these pots was exclusively for cooking by hunter-gatherers, and the round bottom could be the kind of thing that you would settle into the coals of a fire. So you have a fire burning, the round bottom, you just kind of push it down into all the stuff that's burning, and it'll sit up by itself that way. Hmm. And I wonder, and this is a question I don't know the answer to, a dangerous question to to ask, Um, I wonder if the small size of the bowls has to do with the fact that if the, the smaller the vessel, the, the quicker the cook time for the contents, and therefore you're maybe risking uh, the cracking of the bowl by the heat a little less, because hmm. uh, that ends up being, I think, one of the factors in eventually moving on to metal-based cooking technologies is you, you don't have to really worry about them cracking the way you would have to worry about high-temperature cracks in pottery. That's an interesting idea. I uh, I don't know. I didn't read anything about that, but th- that seems possible to me. One thing I did read is simply that the smaller size of these earliest uh, cooking pots has to do with the nomadic lifestyle of the people who probably use them. If you're like moving around a lot and mm-hmm. you need to take a pot from one place to another, obviously it's better for that pot to be smaller. It's less likely. Oh, you know, yes. It's going to be easier to move, less likely to break. And it seems, again, like the pots got larger and had flatter bottoms once people started switching more to an agricultural lifestyle. Yeah, I mean, otherwise, like, how many flat surfaces are you really dealing with? Certainly, and certainly not within the the, the context of the, the, the campfire. I don't know if that's the right answer. Because, but the other thing is, like, you could also have a flat-bottomed pot that could sit in a campfire. So there's no reason I can think of why to use them in a fire the bottom would have to be round like that. I, I don't know if there's a reason anybody's aware of that they would have to be round like this. I just think it's funny that these earliest pots wouldn't stand up by themselves unless mm. maybe they were used with some kind of stand. Maybe they, you know, people built things that didn't survive as much, like a, a holder of some kind. Yeah, or, or also it could have to do, I'm guessing here, with, with uh, making it more durable uh, and packable for people on the move. Hmm. Um, you know, uh, thinking roughly about, against like if you're going to if you're going to uh, you know create the walls of a castle uh, to withstand um, battering rams and so forth, uh, you don't want uh, you, you don't want a, a, a sharp right angle. Uh, you want to have a, a smooth rounded corner. Uh, so, so I don't know. I don't know if that has anything to do with the design of these pots uh, or not. Oh yeah, the bottom does kind of look like an egg. Eggs yeah. are eggs are good design, right? Yeah, yeah. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs and a whole lot of love, 
you transformed a hundred thousand miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And now, for a limited time, get more Cedar Point fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this bundle won't last long. Save now at cedarpoint.com. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to talk about and go through all the things that are sometimes difficult to process alone. We're going to go over how to regulate your emotions, diving deep into holistic personal development, and just building your mindset to have a happier, healthier life. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. (laughs) People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy, right? And basically have conversations that can help us get through this crazy thing we call life. I already believe in myself. I already see myself. And so when people give me an opportunity, I'm just like, oh, great, you see me too. We'll laugh together. We'll cry together and find a way through all of our emotions. Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, but I guess we should talk for a minute again about like what what is the benefit of a pot for cooking? I mean, pot is not the mm-hmm. only way to cook. You could so let's say you catch a salmon in the river, and oh boy, you know, delicious, you know, <laughs> nice fatty meat. It's great. You could put it on a big old stick and just roast it over an open flame. What kind of advantage does cooking it in a pot with water bring? Well, one one uh, important factor that is brought up in the literature is that boiling allows for faster and more thorough cooking of ingredients. Uh, and it also creates a, a tasty broth. Uh, later on, this is also going to be important with uh, with starches. Starches are going to thicken up everything. So boiling is vital to subsequent traditions of rice, ultimately noodles, and so much more. Right. But boiling also, I would say, helps keep maximum nutrition available to eat like because it all Mm -hmm. stays in the pot when you're boiling or i mean i guess some gets out there's some splatter and lost through steam and all that but it's minimal when you're cooking over an open fire you just think about a lot of nutrition is probably dripping right off of your food and that's precious food energy that's just sizzling in the fire down below in a soup everything stays in the pot it all becomes part of a nutritious broth and you can have every last drop Oh, this reminds me of, we did an episode of the show where we talked about what gravy a bit. Gravy, yeah. Like, like gravy is essentially the legacy of, um, of meat drippings and so forth, uh, the precious drippings. 
Oh yeah, we were. T- I don't remember the name of the people, but they were, they were a, a, a group that lived in uh, the region that is today Finland. And these people uh, had some religious traditions of like uh, of like rituals involving cooking bear meat and the gravy made from the bear. Yeah, yeah. And then of course we get into this a little bit in the invention episode on ketchup, where you're also dealing with kind of a dripping based condiment uh, that is uh, that is then used uh, as a way to transform other dishes. I believe also with with boiling, you're, there's an advantage in just how you're heating, say, a, a chunk of fish, right? Like uh, mm-hmm. the, the way that the heat is applied to the flesh. Well, yeah, I guess that's true. I mean, you certainly can boil foods until they're very overdone, like to a to a person with sensitive taste. But it's harder to like burn foods if mm-hmm. you're boiling them in water. They will just continue to leach. Uh, I mean the the like meat that gets boiled may become very tough and lose a lot of flavor but the flavor is getting lost again into the broth which you can drink right now there were there were certainly you do, you do see mention uh, in the literature of quote unquote ceramic cauldrons which were simply larger ceramic pots that could be used over an open fire uh, but of course there are material limits even with modern ceramics uh, it can warp and crack in ways that metal does not uh, but of course, we didn't just go straight from pottery to cast iron cauldrons. There's this whole metallurgical evolution involving copper, bronze, brass, gold, and silver. Uh, I think we've discussed the broad dates on these innovations before, but in the old world, it tends to go like copper, 8th millennium BCE, copper smelting by 6th, bronze by the 3rd, and brass by the final centuries BCE, wrought iron by the 3rd millennium BCE, cast iron in the 9th century BCE, heat-treated steel and crucible steel during the 1st millennium BCE. I gotta say, that's a great luxury of the modern era. I appreciate being able to cook in in steel vessels or metal vessels Mm -hmm. generally and not having to try to cook in earthenware pots. Now, this is sort of tangential to the subject, but I, I, when I think about soup, I necessarily think about seasoning, you know, you know casting all your little spells of flavor on the, uh, on the cauldron as it bubbles. And so I did want to mention briefly that I came across a paper about uh, early evidence for the use of spices in cooking, mm-hmm. uh, cooking, wet cooking, soup cooking in clay pottery. There was a paper published called Phytoliths in Pottery Reveal the Use of Spice in European Prehistoric Culture. This was by Haley Saul et al., published in PLOS One in August 2013. And this study actually did analysis of what are called phytoliths, that literally means plant rocks or or plant stones, which are these tiny uh, mineral structures that you can find inside plants which are made out uh, generally out of silica that is like taken up from the soil. So minerals get taken up from the roots into the plant's tissues and creates these little mineral deposits. And these mineral deposits can, of course, survive for a long time and can tell you things about ancient plants. So in this paper, they looked at uh, phytoliths that were left behind in what they call carbonized food deposits on prehistoric pottery. I think these would be kind of like the charred patches that we were looking at in that other paper. Mm -hmm. They say these are from, quote, the Western Baltic dating from 6,100 calibrated years before present to 5,750 before present. Now, these clay cooking pots were found at uh, the Neolithic sites in, I believe, modern-day Denmark and Germany. And so they analyzed the phytoliths in these pots to determine what these prehistoric people 
were seasoning their food with, and they found out that it was a modern garlic mustard seed. Mm. I didn't know those terms could be combined that way, but modern garlic mustard seed, or uh, Aliaria petiolata. They write, quote, as this seed has a strong flavor, little nutritional value, and the phytolists are found in pots along with terrestrial and marine animal residues, these findings are the first direct evidence for the spicing of food in European prehistoric cuisine. Wow. That's that's incredible. Uh, they also say that this suggests a uh, much greater antiquity for the spicing of foods than uh, you can tell from any other previous physical records. So that's pretty impressive to me because, again, these are people uh, probably from before the age of agriculture, or if they are practicing agriculture, it's early sort of proto-agriculture. Mm-hmm. So you have either hunter-gatherers or uh, early farmers already putting putting spices into their food because they, they just got to have more flavor. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it makes sense, right? I mean, you're, you're, you, by necessity, you have to figure out what in your surrounding environment is useful as food. Uh, also, what has some sort of uh, medicinal property or some other property that's worth knowing about, even some poisonous property. And then you get into this area, well, okay, this is, uh, this is maybe a little too potent to be consumed outright, but of course it can be added to food, and we can add it to this broth that we're preparing. Um, it, this reminds me too of how in Chinese traditions it's often described that like the the earliest tea traditions were not the were not were not necessarily the consumption of tea as a drink the way we think of it now but more as a soup um, as this hmm. thing that is prepared thusly uh, so it, this ties in with so much we're going to be discussing about like what what is the cauldron what is the the, the bowl of heated liquid it is a place of transformation. It can take, um, you know, that which is inedible and make it edible. It can take, uh, it, it can combine elements and create something entirely new out of them. And this transformative nature of the cauldron is key to these these various, even far-flung traditions uh, that involve the supernatural and the divine. Oh, yeah. So we're coming back with cauldrons, right? Yeah, so we're going to be back uh, in the next episode talking about cauldron uh, traditions, uh, particularly in Chinese mythology, Chinese traditions. Uh, There's it, it a lot of wonderful stuff in there that but gets, gets very divine, but also uh, highly infernal. Love an evil cauldron. Yeah. All right. Uh, so we'll be back in the next episode, but we'd love to hear from everyone out there. What are your thoughts about soup and soup uh, cooking technology. Um, I know that some of you out there have, have written in about various uh, sort of um, older, you know, ancient practices that uh, have been, you know, either revitalized or just, you know, just explored as, a, as, an, as an exercise. So it, I would be very interested if anyone out there has done any, any stone boiling and if you have any, uh, any tidbits you'd like to share about that experience, uh, because I find the whole process fascinating. So write in with any of that. Uh, in the meantime, if you want to check out other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, uh, the core episodes published Tuesdays and Thursdays in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed. On Mondays, we usually do listener mail. On Wednesdays, we usually do an artifact or a monster fact episode. That's the short form episode. And then on Fridays, we set aside most serious concerns and just talk about a weird film on Weird House Cinema. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com.
Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And now, for a limited time, get more Cedar Point fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this bundle won't last long. Save now at cedarpoint.com. Discover a new educational and interactive podcast, Stories for Kids by Lingo Kids. Our episodes are packed with fun activities. Right, Elliot? Oh, yes! We went shape hunting around the block, and we found spheres and cubes on the street. That was great fun. Join Stories for Kids, the Lingo Kids podcast, inspiring you to learn while having fun. Listen to Stories for Kids on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.